Hey, this is David Merrill, pastor of the Well Church. I would like to first thank you for downloading the app and listening to what God is doing through the life and ministry of the Well Church. I would also ask that before you listen to this message, that you would pray that God not only continues to transform lives through this ministry, but also that as you hear the Word of God proclaimed, pray that the Holy Spirit would convict you in areas that your life has not been given over to God, empower you to repent and turn, but also embolden you to be doers of the word and not simply hearers, in order that you become a light in your homes, in your schools, in your workplaces, and even in your local church body. Let us be radically in love with Jesus and radically in love with his people. Once again, I just thank you for listening, and may God bless you abundantly. We're in the Gospel of John. Do you all remember what we talked about last week? We talked about how Jesus compares himself to the serpent in the wilderness. Remember, Moses and the Israelites were in the wilderness, and the Israelites started to grumble and complain and say, well, we don't have this, any food, we don't need water, and this worthless manna. And we, have, we saw how God used the manna to be a test to see whether or not that they would obey him, to see whether or not they would actually obey his commands, stay within his judgments, stay within his provisions, stay within his life. And so what we saw that was the Israelites in their own infinite wisdom decided to go against God's judgments and in their own discernment thought that it would be better for them to be in slavery than to be in the will and provisions of God. And so they said, this worthless man, if we want nothing to do with what God has to offer, we'd be better off in slavery. And so what does God do? He sends a bunch of snakes, right, to bite the Israelites. And all these people are falling down dead. They're killing over. They freak out. They run to Moses and say, dude, we messed up. We screwed up, right? Please go to God, figure this out because we sinned against you, Moses, and we sinned against God. And so Moses goes to God and says, build this bronze serpent, put it up on a pole, and everybody who is bit by a snake and is dying with the poison in their veins, now if they look upon the snake, they'll be saved. All they have to do is look upon the bronze serpent and they're saved. And so Jesus says, so likewise are you. This bronze serpent was who? Jesus, like that was me. I'm fulfilling this. I'm opening the scroll to you so to know that I am the bronze serpent. And he says that, look, we are just the same. We are dead men walking with the poison running through our veins, right? Before we look upon Jesus, we are dead. We have this poison, the seed of Adam, the poison of the the knowledge of good and evil. We talked about that, the fruit in the garden. Thus far in your life, you have chosen to walk in the slavery of your own wisdom, the slavery of your own discernment, your own judgment, your own truth of what's right and what's wrong. You have spent your life walking away saying, God, you're worthless manna. I would be much better in slavery. Now, probably some of you are thinking, I've never said that God's manna or God's word is worthless. I mean, really, though? Think about it. What are you saying when God says, don't lie, and you decide it is better to lie? You are saying that, God, your worthless manna of truth is worth less than my judgment of whether or not this lie is to be good or not. Your worthless manna of don't commit adultery is worth less than my wisdom because I love her. Your worthless manna of don't have pride is worth less to me having self-esteem, self-confidence. 
right? We have made a declaration that God's manna is worthless and we know better. We would rather have the worthless, we'd rather have our slavery of our sins than the worthless manna of God and his provisions and his, his love. Amen? That's, that's who we were. But God being rich in mercy, he sends his son. He put a serpent on the pole. He sent his lamb to be slain on a tree so that those who look upon him will be saved. Those who trust him, not just be forgiven of their sins of the past, but it says that they'll be given a new spirit. So now what is the new spirit going to do? It's going to make you into a new child that you could actually say God's judgments are faithful and true. My wicked judgments, my truth has led me to destruction. You actually can declare with your mouth, confess with your, your mouth that Jesus is Lord. Amen. So that was last week. Now, but I, I want to sit here for a second. I was thinking about this. I don't want to brush over this because I feel like sometimes I, we preach these sermons and then I ask, what did we preach on last week? And you're like, Jesus. Okay. And, and. You're right, okay, we did do that, uh, but I feel like sometimes that, you know, the Bible talks about how when sometimes when the seed goes into the soil, it springs up and has life, but then it just kind of fades away, or the worries in the world carries, away, you know, carries it away. Sometimes it plants, and it gets fruit, and it bears fruit, and it bears much fruit, and I don't want this to go into the soil, shoot up, and then all of a sudden, because you guys watched a couple episodes of The Office this week, now you don't remember it, Okay. Like, I, I wanted to stick in, to stay in. And it's this truth of this. In John chapter 3, verse 18, this is what Jesus says. He says, he who believes in him is not condemned, but he who does not believe is condemned already because he has, already, he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son. Now, if you go out and you preach the gospel of Jesus Christ, and you preach the gospel that we talked about last week, right? That we're all condemned, that we all stand in judgment, right? There's sin. We all are sinners and we need a salvation. But thanks be to God that God has come, to, Jesus has died on the cross to not only forgive us of our sins, but actually make a way for us to become new and walk away to repent of that sin. If you preach the gospel of Jesus Christ, what will you be called? Condemning? judgmental, right? And unfortunately, that's the, that's the title that you're going to be. If you go and you preach to your neighbor, you preach to your coworker, you tell them, hey, look, the Bible says you have sinned against the holy God and you, this, and you will be judged for your sins. And you preach this message that Jesus died, for the, you, Jesus died for their sins and Jesus made a way for them. You preach that message. Don't judge me. You, you, you Christians only preach a message of condemnation. But what does Jesus say here? I did not come to bring condemnation. I didn't bring condemnation. Because unfortunately, Christians have bought into this lie. We bought into this lie and it causes us to do one of two things. It caught, maybe even some of us in this room where we either, one, we take the word of the gospel of God and say, well, they're rejecting it. They're, they're calling it condemnation. They're saying it's judgmental. I don't want to be judgmental. I want to be loving. And so I'm going to change the, the gospel a little around to make it more receptive and say, well, you know what? God, God loves you so much. You're so special to him. And you know what? I, you know, you have this, this I bet you have this, this 
discontentment in your life, right? You know, and that's a God-shaped hole there. And God needs to fill the God-shaped hole because he doesn't want you to have the sads. And God is going to be your best friend to come into your life. And if you just receive Jesus into your heart, whatever that means, receive him, then Jesus will be with you and you'll walk with you and y'all will be best friends and you won't have the sads ever again. Right? Some of you are like, that's not the gospel. No, it's not. But we soften it. I mean, there's parts in there. I mean, there's, there's bits and pieces. Not the sads part, but you know, but we soften it up so that why wow, people receive it and try to make sure that they know we're not judging them. Or this is more often than what we do, especially in this room, because I know you guys, you guys love the Bible, you love the Word of God, but it is intimidating and you don't want to make your workplaces uncomfortable. You don't want your boss to, be, uh, to, to see you in a certain way. You don't want your friends to leave. So what do we do? We just keep quiet. We keep quiet, and then we, we, we hold on to that, 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 that horrible little quote that I don't know who came up with it, but they need to be taken out back, um, is preach the gospel at all times and when necessary, use words. We love that quote as a Christian. Why? Because it gives us an opportunity to be a coward. If I could preach the gospel and just live in a certain way and be nice to people and become, you know, do that and then never really preach the Bible, never preach the word of God, but it'd just be nice and hopefully one day some. Now, listen, I am not saying that our actions should not declare the gospel of Jesus Christ. The Bible says, let your good work shine in such a way that people want, that you will give glory to the Father in heaven. But our actions should be a representative. Our actions should go coexist with the gospel that comes out of our mouth. And we have cowered away from it because we don't want to be uncomfortable. And so our model is let's be friends with somebody for 20 years and hopefully one day they ask, hey, why are you so nice to me? And then, that's your key, then you can say, it's because of Jesus. We're hoping for that moment, right? Of niceness. Listen to me, Christians. Do not believe the lie. There's one thing you walk away from this morning with, and we not even got into the sermon walk away with this. People already stand condemned. You do not preach condemnation. They already stand in condemnation. You do not create condemnation. They already stand in condemnation. Do not believe the lie that Christians have somehow manifested or created or brought this condemnation. The Bible says because we have walked apart, we could go the theological idea of it. We talked about last week, Adam, seed of Adam, poison of the knowledge of good and evil, all of that we talked about last week. But that is our position, the condemnation. You know, I, I said it on Wednesday night, I was talking to the group. I said, I was talking about the wide road and I said, look, guys, it is so easy for you to go down the road that is wide that leads to destruction. You want to know why? You know what you have to do to get on the wide road? Nothing. All you have to do to be on the wide road is continue doing what you're doing. 
Continue making the same decisions you're making. Continue to walk in your own judgments. Continue to live out your truth. Continue to walk in this, this rebellion against God's wisdom, God's standards, God's judgment. And you are on the way to, the, uh, to, to destruction, on the wide path. Jesus, God did not create you to condemn you. You stood condemned because you walked away from his perfect design of you being holy. What God did through Jesus Christ is he made a way for you to escape condemnation. He made a way for you to be pulled out of what you already stand in. Christians, do not believe the lie. And listen, you are not going to hell because you have committed adultery. The world's not going to hell because they committed homosexuality or they lied or they cheated. You see, you're not going to hell because you cheated on your wife. You see, if you believe that you're going to hell because you cheated on the, your wife, you believe that you're going to heaven because you were a good husband. When God looks upon us, you know what he's going to judge us by? What have you done with my son? What have you done with my son? Did you receive the escape? There's no condemnation in the gospel of Jesus Christ because it's in the gospel of Jesus Christ that people are pulled out of condemnation. You're rescued out of condemnation. And all these sins that you're, just, you're doing and walking in, that's just the manifestation of who you already are. That's just the fruit of your weird deadness, of the poison that's running through your veins. It is only through Jesus Christ. What have you done with my son? Now listen, you're going to preach this message and people are still going to say, no, no, you stand, con you, you're, stop condemning me, stop judging me. Why? Because the world says, the Bible says that people love the darkness. Right? And so when you preach the message of hope and the message of truth, you are shining a light on the thing that they love. You're putting a light on it, and the light is causing it to be exposed for what it is. And they're going to try to flee from it. They're going to try to run from it. They're going to get mad at it. They're going to defend it because this is their love. This is their comfort. This is their hope. This is what they know. This is what they trust in. But the light of the gospel of Jesus Christ shines on the darkness, and people will flee from it because they love their darkness. Then they call it condemning. They call it judgmental. Christians do not believe the lie. If you believe the lie, Satan wins. You think Satan is working hard at messing around with the people that are walking in deadness? No. no. What does he have to do? Nothing. Nothing. Leave them. Leave the dead fish floating down the stream. <laughs> yeah, the whole dead fish thing. What he has to do is to get you guys to believe that telling the gospel is actually not loving. The giving them the way out is actually harmful and it's actually scary and it doesn't work. And because as long as he can get those who are dead to not hear the gospel, then they'll never receive the gospel. And the way that, you, that he gets them to not hear the gospel is he causes those who bring the gospel to cower, to be afraid, to soften it up, to not preach. Because if you believe this lie, then Satan's winning the victory over these people who are walking in condemnation. Amen? Okay. That was last week. Um, ish. This morning, we're going to be, we're going to be talking about a transition, okay? Um, we're going to be transitioning between Old and New Testament. 
Um, in the Old and New Testament, uh, we see this manifested or, or put on display through the, the two characters, John the Baptist and Jesus. Remember, John the Baptist is the last Old Testament prophet. You say, but he's in the New Testament. Yes, he is in the New Testament, but he is the final Old Testament prophet. Jesus is the one who brings in the new covenant. So John is the final Old Covenant, Old Testament prophet whose job it is to herald the coming of Jesus, to bring in the coming of the Messiah, to bring in the coming of the New Testament. Even John's father, Zechariah, knew this. As a priest, he prophesied that the Messiah was to come and become the fulfillment of the law, the fulfillment of Abraham and David, that John the Baptist was going to come and herald the coming of the king, herald the, the Messiah, that the, the, and, uh, declare that the Lamb of God was going to come and take away the sins of the world. So Zechariah prophesied that over John. John comes to herald the coming of the Messiah, comes to herald the coming of the King. Now up to this point though, John the Baptist was the man, right? He was it. Everybody knew who John the Baptizer was, right? He was the guy out in the wilderness. If you didn't go see him, you heard about him. If you didn't love him, you hated him. Right? If you didn't, if you weren't baptized by him, you you knew somebody who was. He was the guy that everybody knew. And up to this point, Jesus was in the background. He's he's kind of doing quiet ministry. Now he started his ministry, but it's kind of silent, except for that whole cleansing of the temple and whipping people. But but that was like, you know, not the, other than that, he was still kind of in the background. He only has a handful of disciples that are following him. But here this morning, this is the transition point where John decreases. And Jesus increases. This is the moment where the Old Testament passes on the baton to the New Testament. This is where Moses, as the mediator of the Old Covenant, gives off the baton to Jesus as the mediator of the New Covenant, where the old sacrificial systems ratified by the, by the, the sacrifices is now given or passed the baton to Jesus, whose death will ratify the New Covenant. This is the moment where it switches. This is a big moment. And we're going to see this morning... Mainly, John the Baptist's humility in this transition. And it's huge. It's so huge. So if you have your Bibles, John chapter 3, verse 22 is where we're going to be. John chapter 2, verse 20, or 3, verse 22. It says this, and we're going to finish up the chapter. After these things, Jesus and his disciples came into the land of Judea, and there he remained with him, uh, with them and baptized. Now, real quick. Um, so it says that after these things, so that's after Passover, after the Nicodemus, after cleansing the temple, temple, it says they go out to the outer countryside of Judea because Jerusalem is in Judah, but, but they go farther out to the countryside and they start to baptize. Now, here's the thing. Remember, Jesus does not baptize. Okay, Jesus never baptized anybody. In fact, in John chapter 4, verse 1 and 2, it says, Therefore, when the Lord knew that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus made and baptized more disciples than John, though Jesus himself did not baptize but his disciples. Okay? So, but his disciples were the baptizing. Jesus did not baptize, but it was his disciples who were out there baptizing with Jesus. Okay? With me? Okay. So they're baptizing, they're out there, people are coming, and it says all are coming. Now, then it goes on, and it says this. 
It says, now John also was baptizing in the Enon near Salem because there was much water there and they came and were baptized. For John had not yet been thrown into prison. Then there arose a dispute between some of John's disciples and the Jews about purification. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you beyond the Jordan to whom you have testified, behold, is baptizing and all are coming to him. Okay, so now... It says there arose this kind of dispute between the Old Testament, or between the John's disciples and this Jew. Now it says Jews in some of your translations, but the actual original Greek is just plural or singular. It's a Jew. So one guy having this argument about purification. Now what's going on here? I believe, now this is one of those I believe moments, okay? So don't, don't take this as scripture because it's vague here. We don't really know what's going on, but if you read the context, it seems like, okay, they'll just say it seems like. It seems like that this Jew is a guy that just came from Jesus, whether he is a disciple, not a disciple of Jesus, maybe he believed in Jesus, maybe he heard Jesus' teaching, maybe he was even baptized by Jesus' disciples, but he seems like this guy just comes from Jesus and is now having an argument with the John's disciples. Now, I say that because of where the conversation goes. That's really the only scenario that makes sense, right? They start getting in this argument, and it seems like this Jew has kind of a different idea of purification than, than the rest of John's disciples who seem to have an idea of the Old Testament version of purification, or at least what the Jews and the rabbis taught in the time of Jesus. You see, in the Old Testament, the, the priest would, were, were charged by God to actually have this lavern, and they would cleanse themselves, wash themselves before they enter into the holy place, right? So there was the, 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 bra- the, the brazen altar, the lavern sitting right there. They'd wash themselves, enter into the holy place. Now, this is actually, what is that a representation of? The priest washing themselves before going into the holy place. Baptism. You see what I'm saying? Because it, it, this is a shadow, the priests must cleanse themselves with the water of this bra- this laver. They must cleanse themselves, which not, it wasn't the water that cleansed them. It wasn't the water that made them pure and holy. It was what it represented. They were cleansing themselves from all the idolatry, all the filthy. And just like Ezekiel says that the water would cleanse them. It wasn't the physical water, but they would cleanse themselves before they enter into the holy place. What must you do before you enter into the holy place? Become baptized in the water to die to your old sins, cleanse from your old stuff before you enter in and become the temple of the Holy Spirit. You are a priest of all believers who cleanse themselves before they enter into the presence of God. That's baptism. That is what they used to do. But the rabbis were like, hey, that's a good idea. We like that. The priests were good enough. God told the priests to cleanse themselves, so we must cleanse ourselves. So they started telling everybody, before you eat, before you do anything, you need to cleanse yourself, right? So they have these purification laws that they've passed down to everybody. And, and what happened was they became law in and of themselves, even though God never said to do this or don't do this. So now it seems like this Jew is coming at it and saying, no, but Jesus said it's not what comes into the man, but what comes out of the man, right? Kind of coming out from a different perspective. And they, they, they have this argument. And the reason I say, I believe this is a guy from Jesus is because what did the disciples do to John? They run to John and they say, hey, that guy, Jesus, that guy you baptized, 
Everybody's going to him. They don't argue about purification. They don't tell John about anything. They just say that guy, Jesus, is, is baptizing a lot of people. So it seems like this guy came from Jesus. But notice what they say. They say, they don't say, hey, that guy, Jesus. It seems like there's a little jealousy here. They say, hey, that guy that you baptized, that guy that you baptized, all are coming to him. He didn't baptize, you didn't baptize, you didn't baptize, he didn't baptize you, John. You baptized him. And they're trying to have, they're, they're trying to pin Jesus against John. They're saying, John, this guy, everybody is going to him now. And what does John say? John says this, John answered and said, a man can receive nothing unless it has been given to him from heaven. He says, you yourselves bear me witness that I said, I'm not the Christ. Why are you thinking that this should have been different? I'm not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. He who has the bride is the bridegroom, but the friend of the bridegroom who stands and bears him, uh, uh, who stands and hears him rejoices greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is fulfilled. He must increase, but I must decrease. I love this. So John's answer to the disciples who come to him and say, hey, this dude way out, the, the, the guy that you baptized in the Jordan, everybody's coming to him. And John says, good. <laughs> he says, that's the plan. That's what was, that was the goal of the whole thing. I told you I wasn't Jesus. I wasn't the Christ. I wasn't the Messiah. I told you that the plan was always Jesus to be increased. The whole plan was always Jesus to step on. What does he say? He says, no man, what is he? he says, no man can receive, or, or what, what a man receives can receive nothing unless it has been given to him from God. John says, I didn't come up with this. So I was like, this wasn't my idea. Do you really believe that one day I was sitting there, you know, hanging out with my dad and, and, and my mom and saying, hey, you know what I want to do? I want to go up in the woods. I want to stop eating good food and I'm going to eat locusts and honey for a little bit and dress like Tarzan. And then I'm going to go out in the woods. I'm just going to start yelling at people that they're wicked sinners and they need to repent. I think that's a good idea. I was like, no, this ministry that was given to me was from God. God called me to be the prophecy, the fulfillment of Malachi 3.1. God gave me the mystery, the word of repentance and baptism. God called me to this ministry. This ministry of John had to be from God because this is a horrible church startup plan. Right? You know, we started this church, what, five, six years ago? Six years ago? Seven, no, six years ago. I started with eight people. Only one of the families is still here. They all left because of me. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> Probably is for me. Uh, one family, I think it's the Hawkins, the only family that's left. Uh, Jeremy, you weren't married yet, so you're not a family, okay? Yeah, Jeremy was there too, actually. But when we started, we started with eight, eight nine people. And you know what I didn't do? I didn't say, hey, guys, come here. I've got an idea. We're all going to sell our houses, and we're going to move up into the, wood, into the woods. We're going to trade in our skinny jeans, and we're going to hunt some bears and wear loincloths. We're not going to eat real food anymore. We're doing grasshoppers, and, and Aaron, you're going to chase down the beehives. Right? And I'm going to stand up next to the, the J Creek. And I'm just going to start screaming at people that they're wicked sinners and they need to repent. 
You know what? Advertisement. We don't need advertisement. We're going to do kind of a field of dreams moment. You just build it. They'll come. Right? <laughs> See, that model, it doesn't really make sense. And yet, John's ministry was effective. It was effective. Why? Because God called him from birth. God's spirit sent him into the wilderness. God gave him the message of repentance and baptism. God opened his eyes to acknowledge that Jesus was the Messiah, the one to come to take the sins of the world. God sent the people to him. God softened the hearts of the people for repentance. God did it all. And we know that it was effective because when Jesus steps on the scene, all people flock to Jesus. Do you know when you know that your ministry was effective? When the result of your ministry is people turn to Jesus. All these people flocked to Jesus and John's like, I did it. Not because of my, this is a horrible game plan. You see, it would make a lot more sense with John the Baptist. It would make a lot more sense if we said, you know what, John? We need somebody charismatic who's going to go out into the wilderness, go out there and speak truth, speak kind, speak this seeker-friendly message, a very, you know, and funny and charismatic. And then we also, you know, the disciples, you know, y'all play a little hill song, maybe a little Bethel, sprinkle it in there. And, you know, our wives, they can go over by the bushes and take care of the children next to the scorpion. And, and we could have childcare, and we could have coffee. Let's let's brew some coffee up, and then give her that honey stuff. You know, let's do some real good stuff. You know, and then and then we'll send everybody out on donkeys to advertise it, and everybody's gonna be like, man, there's something going on up in the wilderness. God's moving. It's a revival, right? It's a, it's a tent revival. It's like the first tent revival. Everybody's excited about what's going on with John the Baptist up in the wilderness. That makes sense. That would work. Yet, John's like, no, 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 let's do it this way, because this is the way that God told me to. And there's, there's a beauty in this. There really is a beauty in this, because John's only job in his life, in his ministry, was to obey God. That's it. I'm going to obey what God tells me to do. It may make no sense in the world's eyes. Like, if I wrote this on paper, you're like, that's nuts. If I told you, here's your business strategy, here's your business model, here's how I want you to operate, here's what I want you to do with your finances, here's what I want, if I wrote it down on paper and you looked at what God wanted you to do with it and what he says in his word, you would say, that makes no sense in light of what the world tells me to do. But when you obey God, then all of a sudden you can be like John, that when there's increase, you can clearly say that increase had nothing to do with me because this is crazy. This has to be God. And then when there's decrease, you have contentment because you knew it was God that brought the increase to begin with. And you're able to walk like John and say there's humility and walk away and say, you know what? God is in control. I believe that John had humility in this transition for two reasons. The first reason is John spent his entire ministry, like I said, just obeying the word of God. And then the effectiveness or the increase or the decrease, he knew 100% it was because of God. You see, one of the biggest things in our life that we struggle with, the reason why we have anxiety when things come and go in our life is because we cannot clearly say that everything I did was rooted in what I knew God wanted me to do. Because even, even in our lives, we'll say, oh, I'm doing this for the glory of God. 
doing this for the glory of God. And we'll say it with our lips, but everything in our life, all the actions, all the decisions, everything we have made thus far has been our own wisdom, our own judgment, our own discernment, our own will in the face of what God says or what the world says or what makes sense in the world. We always choose what makes sense in the world. And at the very end, we say, it's like the rappers who <laughs> write a whole album with cussing, you know, all kinds of killing and shooting and drugs. I like to give thanks to God. Glory be to God. And we always look at them, that's nuts. And yet, how often do we do it? How often do we do this? See, when we live a life that is truly rooted in just obedience to God, it's not going to make sense. But then we can clearly say, this was God. You know, this week, I... Yeah, I feel like I need to say this. Now, hear this when I say this. I'm not bashing any churches on this. There's no church bashing here. Just, just know this. But this has been on my heart all week, and I don't know why. So I need to feel like I need to say this. Maybe it'll help us get you guys kind of get my into my head when I'm when I'm as a leader, as a pastor, as one of the elders here. I've been talking to the leadership team, and I've been talking to the eldership team, and I've been talking to Alan. I always filter it through Alan because if he says it's not about it's a stupid idea, then I just don't tell anybody. Um, but one thing that that drives me nuts, you know, when you're talking about ministry and the ministry being from God, so often in the churches today, the way that the churches operate is that we operate in a way that while we say it is God's church, it's his people, it's his will, it's his plans, nothing in the church was modeled after what God said he wanted. What we do, you see, the reason why John was, this is amazing and this was crazy and it was blowing, that, that it blows me away because it made no sense in the world's eyes. It was just obedience to what God told him to do. But what we do as a modern church, and, and, and listen, I come from somebody who's worked in the church for almost 20 years. I've been in meetings. I've been in, sat down in, 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 in different conference meetings, in different board meetings, in different uh, church planting meetings. We've I've launched, helped launch two or three churches now, and I've seen it. I know it. What we do when you're getting ready to launch a ministry or try to grow your ministry is you hire a consultant for thousands, if not fifty to $100,000. And this guy will come in. This company will come in and they will evaluate. They'll look at you. They'll look at what you're doing. And they will give you a to-do list of what you need to do to be successful, to be profitable, to be um, um, effective and grow. And so they'll give you this list. They'll give you all these details of all this stuff. And, and they'll say, and you know, what's interesting is a lot of these consultants, they also work with Walmart and McDonald's. Why? Because the same strategy that will help McDonald's grow will also help the church grow. Build your brand. Have it your way. Da, 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 da. Okay. Um, is that Burger King? Um, so what happens? This is what they say. This is what they do, and I've seen it. So they say, okay, the first thing we need is you need to make sure you hire the right people, put the right people in play. 
Now, when they say that, they're not talking about what God has said is the right people and the qualifications. It doesn't matter the qualifications of elders in the Bible. It doesn't matter the qualifications of a deacon in the Bible. It doesn't matter what God says he wants his people and where he wants the energy and where he wants the focus. No, you need to hire the best for the position. And so we need an administrator. So all the qualifications that you need is does he call himself or she call himself a Christian? Oh, yeah, he, he owned them. He was the manager of the, the manager of Hooters. Let's bring him in. He calls himself a Christian, but he did awesome with it, right? Oh, he plays lead guitar for, for Leonard Skinner, right? Like, you know, and he's a drunkard. And let's bring him in, though, because he could play killer guitar. Just everything sounds the same. That's a Leonard Skinner joke. Um, right? We, we hire these people based off the qualifications or based off their skills in the workforce, in the world, because that's how the business operates, we need the right people in the right positions to do great things. We need a good administrator, a good worship band, a good team, a good this, a good this. Let's put the right people in the right place. It has nothing to do with what God has said he wants to do for his church. And then you have to have the right ambiance. Here's the thing. You need Instagram-worthy ambiance. You need Insta-worthy ambiance. Because if we're going to try to attract the young adults, young adults in this room, if we're, we're trying to attract you, what we need to do is we need to have Insta-worthy, you know, shots where you can get next to this wall because we made it Insta-worthy and you can do your booty pics here. And then we want you over here so that you can take a picture. So we actually are getting, this is what it is, free advertisement by making the church Insta-worthy. It's, it's thought out. And then we need ambiance because people come to expect at a Justin Bieber concert, ambiance and excitement and passion. And if I can get excited at Justin Bieber, then I should be able to get excited at a church service. So I'm going to create the ambiance with the lighting, with the sound, with the effects, with my pad, all these different things. Create the ambiance. And then we need coffee and we need donuts. You need to have a greeting team that is on point because if they come and they do not feel loved, welcome, or full, when they leave, they will not come back. And you better make sure your seats are comfortable. I'm sure there's a couple of seats in here that might be comfortable. They're all different. So if you got the comfortable one, you're good. Um, you need comfortable seats, you know, comfortable environment. And here's the best, here's the most important part, childcare. You have to, this is what, you have to have good childcare because if I'm trying to reach the young families, God forbid a parent actually have to hang out with their children and teach their children. If we're trying to reach young families, we need to have a childcare on point that brings in the kids, that the kids want to come because the parents, even if they hate the church, if their kids are happy, they'll stay. And this is what they tell you. And then finally, you need a good communicator. You need somebody who's young, who's hip, who wears skinny jeans. <laughs> I got these at Goodwill, so I didn't try them on because I was kind of afraid to try them on Goodwill. They fit-ish. But they need to be charismatic. They need to be seeker-friendly. It needs to be all of these things. And then once you get the, all the parts in play, then we spend up to twenty to $40,000 on advertisement, sending it out, twenty to $10,000 on Facebook, $5,000 on Instagram. And then we hire these, these census consultants where they'll take a census of the whole county of the demographic that we're trying to reach. If you're too old or you're too young or you're this or this and we're not trying to reach you, you will not get put in the census. We're only trying to reach this demographic. The census will take that demographic and then we'll send mailers to you. 
It's what we do. And then after you're doing all of that, you know what always is the last thing they'll say? Pray. And let me tell you something. Some of y'all aren't going to like this, but it works. Works every time. You want to know why? Because consumers are predictable. Consumers are predictable. And you can get a consumer in the church every single time. But what I have learned in my life is if you earn somebody, you gain somebody with a Walmart strategy, you will always be terrified and you will always be competitive and you will always hold a death grip on the ministry to keep your, to keep your customers. You will always be worried that a target is coming in. Why? Because Target has better clothes. Target is cleaner. Target's a little more bougie. Target doesn't have those weird people that come out at 3 o'clock in the morning. So if you gain customers through the Walmart mentality, the Walmart business strategy, you will always be terrified when a Target comes in because you're going to lose customers, and it will happen every time. If you build a church through customers, what will work every single time, every time a church plants next down next door to you, you will always walk in jealousy and competitiveness, and you will always hold a death grip on it. You will never. This goes not just with our church ministry. This goes on with your life. If you have based your life not on what God's word says. Now listen, I am not bashing the churches who do this. And there are a lot more churches who do this model than you think. But what I am saying is if you do not wake up every morning, if you wake up every night or wake up every morning and go to bed every night thinking, how can I grow this? How can I make this better? How can I be this? How can I be better, more effective, more successful? Rather than how, what does God want for his church? Who does God want is, what does the Bible say he wants the positions to be? What does God say he wants to emphasize? What's the major points in the church that he needs to emphasize? What is God's ministry? What is God's church like? At the end of the day, what would God say is a successful church? That's my question. But if you say, what can I do? What can I do? What can I do? Then at the end of the day, your ministry is just that, your ministry. It is your ministry, not God's. I don't care if you give it lip service. At the end of the day, if you live your life the way that you want to do it, the way that you work, the way that you discern, the way that you choose every single day, how can I better my life and do what I want in my day? I do not care if the last words in your day are, Thanks, God, thank God this day has been devoted to you. It is bull. Because everything from your first breath before you, when you woke up to your last breath when you went to sleep has been about you. And everything that you did when you began the church to the end of the church has been about you. And I don't care if you say Jesus' name at the end of every prayer. You see, okay, I'm just going to keep going. And I hope that this is, maybe this is for one person. Everybody else is like, oh, why is he talking about it? When... There's a statistic out there that says 80% of the church does nothing while 20% of the church serves. And I was actually talking to somebody this week about it, and I was like, you know, I want you to think about this. Have you ever gone into Walmart and saw something spill and walked into the back and picked up a mop? 
Has any of you guys ever done that? If you worked there, yeah, Don used to work there. Of course, Don did. Um, no, you're looking. You might. You might. Maybe find somebody and maybe make sure no kids are walking on broken. You might do something, but you're never going to pick up a mop. Why? Because it's not your job. You're a customer, right? There's somebody paid for this. And we wonder why when we do everything we can to be successful in the church, to bring in customers, to bring in consumers into the church, to get their butts in the seats, we wonder why at the end of the day, only 20%, and it's usually the paid staff and maybe the close-in crowd that are doing something, and the rest are not. Why? Because it's not their job. They're customers. We earned them as customers. We won them over as customers. We gained them as customers. We kept them as customers. And it makes sense. The reason why John was able to just hand over his ministry after four or three or four years of effective, powerful effort, work relationships was because John understood, I did not create this. I did not come up with this. This makes no sense in the world's eyes. I just obey God every step of the way. That at the end of your day, you could look at your day and say, man, I, should, I could have lied there and it would have been a lot easier. I could have cheated there and it would have been a lot easier. I could have not said anything there and it would have been a lot easier. I could have done this and ran my business this way. It would have been a lot easier. But I did it God's way. And at the end of the day, whether it's in Increase or decrease, you can sleep well with peace knowing that God is going to do with what God is going to do because all things come from God. Amen. Amen. That makes sense. Y'all with me? I feel like I just hit y'all with a baseball bat. Okay. The second thing, some of y'all are like, the second thing that John says is, and I believe that's the reason why John was able to let go, and this is, we're getting closer to the end, so don't stay with me, um, is that John. His whole ministry, so when your life is devoted to Jesus, surrendered to the will of God, then your ministry will always be about the work of Jesus. It will always be about the work of Jesus. If you are in ministry, if you are in business, if you are going to be successful in anything you do, your ministry will be about the bringing people to Jesus. I'm going to ask you a question. Are people closer to Jesus after hanging out with you? Are people closer to Jesus after they leave your presence? They're like, man, I just felt like I was in the presence of Jesus. I learned more about Jesus. I grew in Jesus. My ministry is about Jesus. Are your, is your whole life focused on bringing people, whether for the first time or even growth in Jesus? John's ministry was about bringing people to Jesus. He says, I am the best man. I'm the friend of the bridegroom. This is like a best man. Now, we, I've been in a lot of weddings I've preached a lot of weddings, and we had a wedding this past couple weeks. Uh, Mark and Michelle, they are not here this morning, but they got married. It was, uh, it was cool. It was a little, like, up on a mountain, and it was beautiful. And, and, and part of the best man's job in, the, in, the, in, in Jesus' time was they would prepare the wedding, but they would also go get the bride and the bridesmaids and bring the bride to the, wed- to the groom, Right? Now, could you imagine, I've never seen this in a wedding, where you have the bride, she's beautiful, you have the groom, he's, he's handsome, he's good looking good, and then all of a sudden you have the best man standing in the middle. Just like, hey, what's up? Or, or the best man getting angry at the groom because he thinks that he deserves the bride. I worked for her. You know how far I had to go get her? You know how long I work, you know how long many hours I spent getting her here? 
She's mine. I deserve the bride. I deserve her. Could you imagine? I would knock out a best man just for the, the, the groom's sake. I would be like, dude, you're welcome, okay? <laughs> no, because the whole best man, his job is to bring the bride to the groom and as a good best man, as a best friend to that man, as a, as a brother to the man, he stands aside and says, this is awesome. My best, my best friend, the groom, is with his bride. And John is saying, my job as the best man was to bring this bride to him. And now my, the groom is with the bride. I've done my job. I can step back. I am decreasing. And now it's Jesus' turn to be with his bride. That is our goal. That is our goal. And let's close with this. This is where John finishes. He says, he who comes from above is above all, and he who is uh, of the earth is earthly and speaks of earth, of the earth. And he who comes from heaven is above all. He has seen, or in what he has seen and heard, that he testifies, and no one receives his testimony. He who has received his testimony has certified that God is true. For he whom God has sent speaks the words of God, for God does not give the spirit of measure by measure. The Father loves the Son and given all things into his hands. He who believes in the Son has everlasting life, and he who does not believe in the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. Okay, so this is where we're finishing up. Um, now, right here, this is how we're going to close, because right here, what we have is actually an alpha and an omega. Now, I know you guys thought, oh, we're going to get through a sermon without an alpha and omega. No, we're, we're not today, okay? Um, right here is a prophecy and a fulfillment. It's really cool, but you need to stay with me on this one. It's a really cool prophecy and fulfillment, because it says that, uh, that, that he whom God sent has the words of God, and God does not give the Spirit by measure, and he gives this, this God, Jesus, all things, right? Turn to Isaiah chapter 11, verse 1, and this is what it comes out of. This is the idea that it comes out of, okay? There shall come forth a rod from the stem of Jesse, and a branch shall grow out of its roots. Now listen, the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him and the spirit of wisdom and understanding and the spirit of counsel and might and the spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord. So, so Jesus says, or John says, that Jesus has been given the spirit without measure, the spirit of the Lord, that all things have been given to him. Now we go back to Isaiah and it says that this man or the one with the rod is going to come from the line of Jesse. Now who's Jesse? David's father, right? He's the, so the line of David, this man, and it says he's going to have a rod. Now, a rod was used by a shepherd for discipline, for correction, for guiding, for the authority of the shepherd over the sheep, for comforting the, she the sheep, right? So you have this rod of the shepherd, right? And so now, think about this. Now, what, what does it say? It says, the spirit of the Lord will be upon him. Okay, so this man will have the spirit of the Lord upon him. It says, also the spirit of wisdom, of understanding, of counsel, of might, of knowledge, and of fear of the Lord. So this man comes in the spirit of the Lord, of knowledge, wisdom, counsel, might, and the fear of the Lord. Now, who, what tribe is Jesse from? Judah, right? Because if Jesus comes from David, and David comes from Jesse, and Jesus comes from the tribe of Judah, then Jesse has to come from Judah. Well, what has God promised Judah in Genesis? He says, the scepter, Genesis 49, this is about Judah, 
The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver from between his feet, until Shiloh comes, and to him shall be the obedience of the people. Listen, to him shall be the obedience of the people. Now the scepter or the iron rod, we're going to see, you see elsewhere in scripture in Revelation, or the rod is the authority tool of a king. It represents the king's authority, just as a rod represents the the authority of the shepherd. And so we're seeing these two things, and they see them throughout scripture, and sometimes, a lot of times, they're oftentimes, they're interchangeable, uh, depending on what they're talking about in a specific meaning. But now we have the scepter or the iron rod in the house of Judah. It will not depart from the house of Judah. And it says that all people, the obedience of his people will be given to him. Right? Y'all with me? Now stay with me. Okay. So now you have the spirit of the Lord, the spirit of wisdom, truth, understanding, counsel, knowledge, wisdom of the Lord. Obedience was given to him. He's going to come from Judah, go through Jesse all the way, right? That's this one. He's going to, and then in Psalms 2, verse 7, it says, I will declare and decree the Lord has said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. He says, and ask of me, I will give to you the nations for your inheritance and the ends of the earth for your possessions that you shall break them with the rod of iron. You shall dash them to pieces like a potter's vessel. Now stay with me. So it says this one to come with the spirit of the Lord, spirit of counsel, spirit. He's going to be called the what? You are my son. This one's called the son of God coming through Judah, going through Jesse with the spirit, with the wisdom, with the counsel, with the obedience, his people will obey him. He will be the son of God. And what else? He's going to inherit all things. What does John say? Jesus, God loves his son and gives him all things. And then it says, he will crush them with the rod of iron, the iron rod, the scepter. Now listen, what is the rod? What is the iron scepter? What is the, iron, the, the scepter or the iron rod? Let's go back to Isaiah chapter 11. We read one through two. Let's read three through four. His delight is in the fear of the Lord, and he shall not judge by, the, by sight of the eyes, nor decide by the hearing of the ear. So this man is going to come, not judge you by what he sees and what he hears. He's going to know true righteousness, right? And it says that his, but with righteousness, he shall judge the poor and decide the equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. And the breath of his lips, he shall slay the wicked. What is the rod of his mouth? The word of God. That Jesus has been, been coming as the one with the rod of Judah through Jesse, the one with the spirit of the Lord and the spirit of wisdom, the spirit of might, the spirit of counsel, the spirit of understanding. He has been going to give him the obedience of all the children, all the people. He's going to inherit all things. What does Jesus say in John? John says, all things have been given to me. This is verse, uh, chapter 17, the authority over all flesh. What is the authority that Jesus gets? What is the power that Jesus has? And he should give what? eternal life to as many as you gave him. Jesus says in Matthew, he says, look, and all authority has been given to me, so therefore go out and make disciples and teach them what? All things. 
Do you see what's going on here? This is the most beautiful thing that God has prophesied that this Messiah was going to come. This one is going to come through Judah, through Jesse. He's going to have the rod. The rod is the word. And this rod is going to have the authority to judge. This rod is going to have the authority to comfort his sheep. This rod is going to have the authority to break apart the nations. This rod is going to have the authority for everlasting life to judge the wicked and the dead. This rod is going to have the, the, the power and the authority to, over all things. And what is the rod? It's the words from his mouth. It's the word, the new manna. It's the open seal that we've been talking about. When Jesus speaks in his words are life. When Jesus says in his words are truth. When Jesus speaks, he comforts the sheep. When Jesus speaks, he judges the wicked and the dead. When Jesus speaks. This is why I get tired, and I've said it before, when we say, oh, I, I think, I want, I believe. Why? Because what you're doing is increasing where it should be Jesus increasing. Because your opinion, your ideas, your judgments, your word mean nothing. When we base our life off the word of truth and the spirit of God, then all of a sudden we are decreasing. He is increasing, and we get to see his increase. All things have been given to Jesus. All authority has been given to Jesus. And did you know in Revelation, this is a beautiful thing, Revelation 2, if this is truly an Alpha and Omega, it has to go all the way to Revelation. In Revelation 2, that Jesus says, I am actually going to give you the authority of the rod. That I'm actually going to give you that power, that authority that God gave me. The power with the words of truth to be able to see the open scroll and to be able to judge the nations with the word of truth. Amen. So I want you guys to do something before we, before we get ready to, to, to take communion. I want you to look at your life. I want you to examine your life. Examine your businesses, examine your work, examine your hobbies, examine the things you do. How much of it can you actually say, this is modeled after God? This is what God wants. How much of it can you actually say, no, every step I have taken, I've taken obedience to God because I want to see him in control of this. I want to see his increase or his decrease, but I want to see God as the center. I have said every morning, right? This is our prayer. Every morning, God, what do you want for it? What does your word say you want out of this life, out of my work, out of my church, out of my, you know, and that's something that we as an elder group pray all the time. Like, what is, this is God's church. What are we doing that's wrong? That's not God. What are we doing that is of God? God and let's do it better. But every, we all should be doing that every morning in our own life. God, what am I doing that's of you? And what am I doing that is just in my own discernment, judgment, will? Right? Because it's your words that have power. It's your words that you judge the wicked. It's your words that you will comfort your sheep. It's your words that you bring life to the dead. It's your words that you take those who are already walking in condemnation and you bring them into life. So I want to live my life based off of your words. Amen. So let's pray. And I just pray, just take some time to reflect on your life and repent in, in, in the areas that we have, get, that we have done it our, our way. And just ask that God just kind of shows up and this spirit takes over these areas that have, we've had such a death grip on. So let's just take a time just in quiet and silence and just pray. And then we're going to get up and take communion.